Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. The untimely death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia in February of 2016 amplified questions about the Supreme Court in the 2016 election to new highs. Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's High Wire Act in denying a hearing and vote on President Barack Obama's nominee to fill that seat, Judge Merrick Garland, ultimately paid off for him. President Donald Trump nominated Judge Neil Gorsuch, who was then confirmed by the Republican-controlled Senate. A year later, the political world was rocked again by the retirement of Justice Anthony Kennedy and President Trump's nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the bench. Following one of the most contentious confirmation hearings in modern American political history, Kavanaugh was also confirmed. Now, the passing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has created another election year vacancy on the nation's highest court. President Trump has nominated Judge Amy Coney Barrett to fill the seat. The political temperature has again risen. In his new book, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court, Cato's Ilya Shapiro examines the history of the judicial confirmation hearings, how politics has invaded the Supreme Court, and how appointments to the court have become one of the most explosive features of our system of government. How did our politics of the judiciary get this way? How is that politics affecting us as a nation? And what, if anything, can be done about it? Ilya Shapiro joins us to discuss. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Acton Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Ilya Shapiro is the director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute and publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He is the co-author of Religious Liberties for Corporations, Hobby Lobby, the Affordable Care Act, and the Constitution. Shapiro has contributed to a variety of academic, popular, and professional publications, including the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, Washington Post, and Los Angeles Times. He holds a JD from the University of Chicago Law School. He is the author of the new book, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. Ilya Shapiro, welcome to Act in Line. Good to be with you. Let's get into precedents, because we've heard a lot about that. We've heard that word used a lot over the last couple of weeks with the uh, untimely passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett to the bench. Historically speaking, how unprecedented is it to see a judicial nomination to the highest court in a presidential year? Uh, It's not very unprecedented at all. There have been, this is the 30th vacancy during a presidential election year. In all 30 times, now counting Judge Barrett, the president has made a nomination. As far as confirmation rates go, that is almost entirely determined by whether the party that uh, has the White House also controls the Senate. Uh, When it does, 
in the 19 times where we've had that unified government, 17 of those times there's been a confirmation. And one of those times was a, a technicality where George Washington, it was the end of the Senate term, so George Washington withdrew and then resubmitted in, in the new term and had the confirmation then. And when there's divided government, that was the Merrick Garland situation four years ago, only once out of 10 times during that election year vacancy has there been a confirmation. So purely on the historical record, uh, what's going on right now with Mitch McConnell uh, looking to force that vote um, is, is not unusual. What I think is informing a lot of the way we're talking about the Barrett nomination here in 2020 is what happened in 2016 with the untimely passing of Justice Scalia and Mitch McConnell's decision to not give a hearing or a vote to President Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland. How unprecedented was that circumstance that the Senate would not even consider the nominee and instead just sat on their hands about it? Yeah, well, I gave you the, the bare statistics in terms of divided versus united government in, a, in an election year. In terms of just not acting on a nominee, that's happened 10 times uh, in our history. Although the last time was 1881, so it hasn't happened recently. But then again, the last time that we had, uh, and only time that we had an opposite party Senate confirm a nominee was 1888. So look, at, at base, this is all politics. This is not uh, norms or laws or co let alone constitutional rules. It is a political argument that's being made that, uh, you know, you can slice it various ways, whether the united versus divided government bit versus in 2012, Obama was reelected. Then in 2014, the Republicans won the Senate. So now we need a rubber match, whereas now we have Trump followed by Republicans expanding their lead in the Senate. But at base, you know, some people find that hypocritical. Others don't. It's a purely political argument. We're doing what our voters want us to do. And we think that the this judge, this nominee is good for the country or a nominee from this president would not be good for the country. So again, it's up to the voters to judge. Uh, and McConnell's gamble four years ago was very risky. Of course, most people didn't think that Trump would win the election. And uh, Hillary Clinton barely mentioned uh, Merrick Garland. She might have been appointing somebody much less moderate and younger. So it was definitely a risk uh, that paid off. Uh, and now is kind of somewhat uh, the reverse argument being made, although historically in 2016 as part of this, uh, the issue of the Supreme Court and judicial nominations has generally inured to the benefit of uh, Republican candidates. And I guess both Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump are counting on that to be the case again. Has our politics and the Supreme Court always been this closely intertwined or has it gotten more so over time? It depends what you mean by this closely intertwined, because politics, uh, this is what I found out, not necessarily surprising, but it, it was surprising how much that politics has always been a part of the nomination and confirmation process. Again, I'm talking about how they get onto the court. I'm not talking about whether the court is a political institution or, or, or what have you. That's a separate uh, issue. But George Washington had a nominee uh, rejected, not the one I mentioned who had to be withdrawn and resubmitted, but another one just purely rejected. About half of our presidents have had problem uh, filling seats. And it, it depends during different periods between Andrew Jackson and Abraham Lincoln, a, part, a time of party realignment, uh, obviously the, the, the national debate over slavery, very contentious period, only eight of 21 nominees were confirmed. Uh, then again, uh, from I think it's after Lincoln through uh, 1934, I believe it is, we had uh, all but one uh, nominee confirmed. So it just, um, 
uh, it, it plays in different ways. Uh, and, and presidents try to get different things out of their nominees, whether to shore up support for a particular faction of their party, whether to uh, represent a region, or whether to get at this so-called real politics, regardless of what the explicit party uh, affiliation of a nominee uh, might be. What's, what's different in modern times is that, first of all, the Supreme Court is very powerful because the federal government is very powerful. Uh, we have the, the, the amassing of power in Washington and then within the federal government, a skewing of that power away from Congress and towards the executive branch, the administrative agencies who write the rules by which we live our lives, that, that are many more pages of these rules than, than of the laws that Congress passes. Uh, and with this big government, at the same time, you have divergent interpretive theories mapping onto partisan preferences at a time when the parties are more ideologically sorted since uh, at least the Civil War, if not ever. And so given those two things, the sorting, the ideological divergence of interpretive theory and the big government, uh, of course, every time there's a vacancy, uh, these things are going to be fraught. What do you make of the criticism that says because of how much power Congress has opted to defer uh, with the evolution of the court, many view it as acting as essentially a mini legislature? Uh, what do you make of that criticism and, and how that has influenced our politics over the court? Well, yeah, I mean, the court should not be acting as a mini legislature. It's, it's bizarre that we have more uh, protests, demonstrations in front of the Supreme Court than in front of Congress, right? The legislature is where our elected representatives are supposed to hash out differences of policy, of values, uh, whatever the, the, the clashes are. Uh, but increasingly, and this trend continues, um, uh, those decisions are, are shifted into the Supreme Court. Now, you know, if we reverse that, if, uh, you know, and this is sort of my overall not completely satisfying conclusion that the only way to uh, reverse the toxicity surrounding Supreme Court nominations is to uh, rebalance, have the court rebalance our constitutional order by pushing power back down to states and the people and uh, enforcing separation of powers in, in Washington, we'd still have uh, disputes, legal disputes over things like abortion and guns and allegations that states or localities are violating individual rights. So it's not that, you know, if you, if you observe federalism and separation of powers, all of a sudden uh, the court will no longer decide controversial issues. It will, uh, but at least then it can be more of an honest discussion of, you know, how you interpret the constitution, what is the origin of rights, that sort of thing, rather than, oh, you're being activist, you're being restrained, or you're, you know, deferring too much of the political branches, you're, defer you're, not, you're not deferring enough. Do you think there's any value to the modern confirmation hearings? I mean, we've seen so much of, of Congress, especially with the cameras in front of uh, politicians in those chambers, the politicians playing to those cameras for the sound bites that they want. Do, do you think the nomination hearings reveal anything or have they, are they mostly political theater now? It's, uh, I, I swear to your listeners that we did not coordinate the questions ahead of time because I actually have uh, an op-ed coming out in USA Today, I don't know, tomorrow, maybe at some point this week, uh, arguing that confirmation hearing, public confirmation hearings uh, cost our public discourse, harm our public discourse more than they uh, benefit. I mean, they, they were useful for a time. 
when it was hard to find out about these nominees and we, you know, earnestly wanted to know their views on different things and their backgrounds and things like that. Uh, but at this point where we can read all of their judicial and academic writings and learn about them online, uh, and for sensitive things like FBI background checks and financial records, whatnot, the, the Judiciary Committee has their closed hearing and, and can, can continue to do that. But these public hearings where the nominee is coached and trained to talk a lot without saying anything, and then the senators, one side is lobbing softballs, the other side is trying to ask gotcha questions or making B-roll for their, for their campaign uh, advertisements, that just does not serve anybody's purpose. We don't learn anything about the nominee. We don't learn very much at all about the state of the law. And it just, um, you know, gets everyone uh, into the muck. So, you know, hearings have not always been part of the process. It's just over 100 years. The, the first ones were held in 1916, when uh, the very controversial Louis Brandeis was nominated, the first uh, Jewish nominee, but even more uh, controversially, uh, a crusading progressive. Uh, you know, this is a tumultuous time then. And his uh, confirmation process lasted almost five months, longer than anyone else. Although the nominee himself, it was seen as unseemly to have him testify. So he did not testify, although we did have these public hearings uh, for the first time. But yeah, at the, at the end of the day, I think the, the hearings have run their course, served their purpose. Very hard to unwind. I mean, hard to make that, you know, I as a think tank pundit can sure, you know, lob off an op-ed saying end the hearings. Uh, but if you're a politician, you start saying that, you're like, well, you're against transparency. What are you hiding? That sort of thing. But I think uh, when you really think about it lucidly, uh, the, the, the hearings are, are at best kabuki and at worst uh, damaging to our discourse. In addition to the technological part of that, that it's so easy now to access the history of the judges or, or the candidates who are nominated to the Supreme Court, uh, was it the Bork hearing really where you would say that it started, uh, the nomination hearing process started from going from more from light to heat? That's that's probably right. Uh, the Bork hearing, the Bork nomination was not the first one where you know, politics played a role or things got contentious or, or things like that. That's overstated. But it is the, the first big one that was televised. I mean, the others were televised, but I mean, really, this broke into, uh, you know, clips were played in the nightly news and the media certainly played a role in um, uh, uh uh, accentuating uh, the dynamic that was going on, kind of the the demagogic rhetoric from the Democrats, Bork not playing this game that we now know of just, uh, you know, uh, not, not saying anything and just uh, uh, trying to be nice and, and things like that. You know, Bork was, uh, he was an academic and, uh, and, a, and a street fighter, in effect, uh, intellectually speaking, and was trying to make... Uh, uh, academic points, uh, or as uh, Paul Simon, the senator from Illinois on the Judiciary Committee said, he was trying to score debate points rather than get votes. Uh, and it, it was didn't do himself any favor, it was not effective. And at the same time, the Republicans just weren't ready. They were caught on their back foot. They didn't have a rapid response operation. And their whole strategy was to portray Bork as neither liberal nor conservative, but just call him as I see him, uh, much like the moderate Lewis Powell, who he was replacing. It was an ineffective strategy uh, all around. Um, ironically, though, if um, so, here's kind of a curiosity of history that I go into uh, in my book, uh, Supreme Disorder. If uh, Bork and Scalia had switched places, so Scalia was confirmed unanimously in 1986, the year before, um, 
when Rehnquist was simultaneously nominated uh, to be elevated to chief justice and took a lot of heat for his memos as a, as a Supreme Court clerk during the 1950s, during the Brown v. Board, uh, et cetera. Um, and Republicans had the majority in the Senate then, it's very likely that Bork would have gotten through in 86. And then in 87, with Scalia being so affable and charming, puffing his pipe, and the first Italian-American nominee, we can't, it's hard to think about it, but that was a a big part of his appeal, uh, I think they both would have gone through. Uh, But yeah, that 1987 hearing was the the start of the the big focus uh, on uh, on that very public process, the only time where a judicial nominee, after all, goes toe-to-toe with politicians. Let's talk about nominees for a bit. Obviously, we don't know how Judge Bork would have ruled had he been elevated to the Supreme Court. We certainly know Justice Scalia's record, but there are plenty of other examples of Supreme Court justices who were appointed by Republican presidents who are generally perceived to have been disappointments. David Souter certainly comes to mind. Whereas the appointments by Democrat presidents for the interests of the political left rarely seem to be regarded as disappointments in the same way. Why do you think it is that so many of these Republican-appointed justices have been perceived as disappointing or moving leftward in their uh, interpretation of the Constitution over time? Well, it's a bit of a skewed sample in that there have only been uh, four uh, appointments by Democratic presidents in the last 50 years, uh, the two by Clinton and the two by uh, Obama. Um, but uh, the, the, the thing is that the legal establishment or the legal profession uh, skews left in general. So it's harder to, to make an error if you're kind of a a generic uh, progressive, a generic uh, liberal of some sort, uh, you're going to be there in some regard. Uh, and the uh, jurisprudential method or the, or the, or the legal theory, uh, whether you call it living constitutionalism or pragmatism or justice seeking or what have you, at least in those most controversial cases, all gets you to the same place on the left. Uh, whereas on the right, even if you're not making a mistake, even if, you know, Souter was an attempt, to, uh, an overreaction to the Bork situation and to, an attempt to have a stealth candidate who was really conservative, but without that paper trail, so couldn't be attacked. Uh, but even if you don't make that kind of mistake, uh, we see among the, the current five Republican appointed justices, a wide variety of intellectual approaches. There's kind of historical originalism. There's a a law and order uh, conservative approach. There's uh, a text and structure in history. There's a more natural rights or natural law approach. And there's a minimalism or judicial restraint. Uh, You could probably guess uh, which justice I was describing with with each of those. But, um, you know, there's there's differences there. uh, And that comes out in uh, a lot of the high profile cases. So even if you don't make a mistake, uh, you know, the, the, you, you can have uh, that, uh, that divergence. But also there's kind of a learning within the conservative legal movement. So, okay, uh, we had Kennedy who was a moderate squish. We're gonna try to avoid that by having people who are, uh, you know, devoted movement types, Republicans, you know, can't doubt their allegiances, that sort of thing. Well, then you get uh, Roberts, right? You worked in the Reagan administration. Nobody is going to think that he's some uh, flag-burning hippie or anything like that. 
but he is more of the restraint school or, or not rock the boat, be minimalistic or incremental in your rulings rather than a devotion to an overarching uh, interpretive theory like originalism and textualism. So now the lesson is, okay, no more Roberts. Not only do you need the indicators of you know, signaling that you're, you've been in the Federalist Society, but where, uh, what, give me examples of controversial positions that you've taken, you know, uh, where you've really exposed your, your views to, uh, to, to the fire. Um, and even then, occasionally you get a, you know, in, in the Bostock case on uh, gender identity and sexual orientation protections in employment discrimination law this past term, uh, Gorsuch is a, you know, very literalist uh, type of judge, and so might uh, might uh, disagree with uh, Kavanaugh, another textualist uh, uh, on the court. Since you brought up John Roberts, uh, let me ask you about him. What do you What do you make of the Chief Justice? Um, do Do you th- you know, I, I don't mean to suggest that he's ruling in a way that is disingenuous, but uh, it, it seems often suggested that there's some political calculation in his rulings that he's seems interested in maintaining the credibility of the court. What do you make of the chief justice? And do you think that these efforts to rule in a way to protect the legitimacy of the court may also be undermining it in some view at the same time? Uh, I do think all of that. I don't know if whether you got that from reading my writings, but I had a I had a feature in the Washington Examiner magazine uh, in July called Robert's Rules that that goes into this. I do think that he is taking certain positions in part because of uh, how he is generally in part because he's the chief justice and feels a greater burden to uh, preserve the court's institutional integrity or legitimacy as he sees it, and so might might take votes. Um, that he might not necessarily believe in, but he thinks are necessary uh, for the greater good, as it were. Uh, I think we saw that this term in the uh, the abortion case, uh, June Medical, where even though he says that that four-year-old precedent is wrong, but I'm going to vote to uphold it, even though in the past he's had no problem overturning uh, uh, much longer, more entrenched precedents, whether in the Citizens United case or Janus in terms of workers' First Amendment rights or uh, others. And there's other examples where, you know, even, even that 2012 Obamacare decision, NFIB versus Sebelius, where he famously or infamously transmogrified the mandate penalty into a tax in order to uphold it under the, under the taxing power. Uh, you know, he felt he needed to do that in order to preserve the status quo and defer to Congress and let the voters make the ultimate decision, those sorts of things. Even though you could tell in his heart of hearts, he knew that, uh, that the law was unconstitutional. Ironically, um, I think it's when justices, whether he or anyone else, are seen as voting strategically or thinking about legitimacy or other such extra legal concerns that the court is perceived as acting or that justice is perceived as acting less legitimately. One of the evolutions to, in part to address uh, what we had just discussed with the history of Republican nominees seeming not to work out in the way that they were envisioned to, uh, also to satisfy people who were skeptical of Donald Trump's candidacy for president was the list that Donald Trump put out of uh, the kind of candidates that he would consider for the Supreme Court. Uh, Do you think this is a good evolution? And do you think that it is something that will stick in our politics for the foreseeable future? 
Yeah, I mean, it's um, we've had this ratcheting up uh, of tensions. Um, we've had, um, I mean, uh, really, so long as the court matters and different interpretive theories map onto partisan identification, um, you know, there's there's no escape uh, from the dynamic. I mean, I, I suppose you could have, um, you know, there, there's no Deus ex machina. You could, you could, if if we were writing on a blank slate, you might want to have a, a larger court because there'd be fewer 10 to nine decisions than currently five to four and each seat would be worth uh, less in that scenario. Uh, or you might want an even number of justices or you might want uh, term limits so we don't have these arbitrary uh, uh, vacancies or morbid uh, health watches on octogenarian justices or politically timed retirements, that sort of thing but awfully hard to get there. And if, if we had the political will for a constitutional amendment or a grand bargain over the size of the court or, or, or what have you, then, then it's kind of a chicken and egg problem. Then we wouldn't have the underlying uh, uh, polarization in terms of the substance of the matter. So I, I really don't see an easy escape. So you seem to reference it there, the suggestion now that you're hearing of court packing being a consideration, could, could you give the history of the concept of, of court packing, where it came from, and uh, how it leads to now? Sure. Um, the, uh, well, the, I mean, most famously, FD, there, there's FDR's court packing, but um, uh, in 1937, the, the attempt uh, to expand uh, the court because it had been striking down various New Deal programs. And so FDR proposed to add six justices, uh, one to essentially assist the old men who might not be up to the task. Uh, hugely unpopular. I mean, it's kind of remarkable. Uh, FDR had just been reelected overwhelmingly in 1936. This is the uh, the as-goes Maine, so-goes Vermont landslide election where, where FDR won all but those two states. And then a year later, uh, not having had an opportunity to appoint any justices out of frustration, he proposes this plan. His vice president campaigns against it. The chief justice and the progressive justice, Louis Brandeis, send a letter against it. The Democrats are trounced in the midterms in 1938. They lose 80 seats and eight in the Senate. Um, and a few years later, FDR gets to uh, court pack the old fashioned way, winning more elections, maintaining power and by 1941, he'd appointed uh, seven uh, of the justices, plus elevating another one to be the chief. So that's, you know, that's historically the way to do it. Uh, in the 19th century, there were other examples of court packing. For that matter, the, uh, it starts with the, the 1801 Midnight Judges Act, when uh, John Adams, having lost re-election to Thomas Jefferson, wants to reduce Jefferson's power and the power of these upstarts in the Democratic Republican Party, and so reduced the court to five members at its next vacancy. But the following year, with the switch in parties, uh, Congress restored the court to six seats, uh, which is a move that Justice Samuel Chase opposed, which led to his impeachment. Uh, and by the way, in, in addition to that Midnight Judges Act, while a lame duck having lost to Jefferson, John Adams appointed during that lame duck session and had confirmed John Marshall. So again, we have all these this interesting history. Other seats were added uh, in the following uh, decades, but in part to uh, Jefferson's attempt to counteract John Marshall's uh, capital F Federalist proclivities, although that was unsuccessful given Marshall's skill at uh, swaying his new colleagues. A couple of more seats were added under Andrew Jackson to allow him to reshape the court, and that contributed to uh, Dred Scott, 
Uh, and then a tenth seat was added uh, uh, for, for Abraham Lincoln. A couple were removed under, uh, to, to prevent Andrew Johnson from uh, appointing people. Again, political shenanigans across the board. In 1869, uh, the Circuit Judges Act fixed the bench at nine seats, and we've been there ever since. At this point, it's, it's, it's become a norm. And as I said, you, know, you might want, uh, if you're writing on a blank slate, to have a different number, uh, but that's where, we, uh, that's where we basically are. You mentioned the unpopularity of the idea of court packing under FDR, despite his overwhelming electoral victory. Do, do you think it would be equally unpopular if it were seriously proposed in the near future? Or does our negative polarization more or less guarantee that as long as one party's proposing it, it's going to have a certain amount of popularity no matter what? The polls I've seen uh, do indicate that, that it's unpopular. Um, you know, query whether that'll change if um, uh, Amy Coney Barrett is confirmed before the election and then the Democrats win big uh, at the election. And certainly there'll be a lot of pressure on Joe Biden in that scenario, who would be the president-elect and, and eventually inaugurated, who has been against court packing, um, as was Bernie Sanders, one of the only things I probably agree with, with Bernie on. Um, but he might be pressured into it by the Democratic base. I mean, it would be, it would be a tough position because, as I said, it's uh, certainly not a slam dunk. And if this, is, if this is what they get rid of the legislative filibuster for, that's going to be a tough vote for some of these uh, incoming moderate Democratic senators under this scenario where the Democrats win the Senate, because that means they would have uh, senators, not just Joe Manchin in West Virginia or Christian Sinema in uh, Arizona, these, these purple senators from purple uh, states, but uh, Cal Cunningham in North Carolina and Mark Kelly, uh, also from Arizona, Steve Bullock in, in Montana. That would be a tough vote, uh, certainly for their states. So I think um, you know, there, would be, there would be a lot of uh, crying out from the base to, to do that, to balance out the, what they would consider to be an illegitimate court, but uh, certainly a, no guarantee that it would happen. As you had said, we don't need the confirmation hearings these days to learn more about the record of nominees to the court. We have their judicial opinions. We can learn a lot more about them more easily. Uh, what have you made of the record of, of Amy Coney Barrett, President Trump's nominee? I thought you were going to ask whether we uh, needed these hearings for, for Barrett. I think that's a bridge too far if, if uh, Chairman, uh, Judiciary Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham just said, OK, we don't need the hearings. We'll just go straight to a vote. That probably would uh, not go over as well. So they're going to go through these motions. What we've learned is she's very much like Scalia, whom she considers to be a mentor. She clerked for him you know, 20 years ago, has written about textualism and originalism and stare decisis, the when you keep or don't keep precedent. That, that's the bread and butter of her academic work. Uh, on stare decisis, she's somewhere between Scalia and Thomas. Thomas, of course, basically has never met an erroneous precedent he wouldn't overturn. Uh, Scalia, a little more reticent. Uh, but um, uh, whether it's the Second Amendment, uh, whether it's the First Amendment, uh, uh, very originalist, very kind of holding government officials' feet to the fire. Uh, a lot of residents with Scalia in the criminal procedure area as well. Uh, it might be surprising still for people to learn that uh, someone who is thought of as a law and order conservative had a lot of, uh, not sympathy for, but at least rulings for criminal defendants when the government violated the Fourth or the Sixth Amendment. And you see similar things out of Amy Coney Barrett, grants of 
uh, qualified immunity or suppression of evidence uh, for violating the Fourth Amendment, these uh, sorts of things. I mean, she's not uniformly a criminal defendant's friend. I mean, there's it's a, uh, civil libertarians might consider her to be a mixed bag of, of sorts. Uh, but again, hews very closely to what uh, questions of religious liberty or um, uh, other concerns to what a Scalia would be. Um, so, you know, would slot neatly uh, into the right side of the court somewhere among uh, Thomas and Kavanaugh and Alito and Gorsuch. In the course of researching your book and the history of the Supreme Court nomination process, what, what was the most interesting discovery that you made? Well, that there's really nothing new or little new under the sun. If, if you want to argue that some, some maneuver or something about a nominee is unprecedented, chances are it's not. Um, what, uh, you know, we talked about election year vacancies and confirmation rates, even overall, United government uh, means so much. Uh, when the Senate and the White House are controlled by the same party, there's about a 90% confirmation rate. When different parties, it's under uh, 60%. So, you know, that goes a lot to explain uh, what we've had historically. We've had about, uh, I think it's 126 out of 163 nominees confirmed. A few of those declined to serve. Back in the olden days, it wasn't considered prestigious and it was burdensome to have to literally ride circuit, be on the horseback to go to the far-flung courts and, and help run them. So uh, a little under three quarters of the nominees have ended up uh, uh, serving. But, um, you know, we've had uh, uh, examples of, of all kind of, of what has happened and, and the reasons for which nominees were appointed. Even presidents who have very clear ideological visions sometimes didn't get it right with what they uh, with with the result of their nominations. Uh, take Woodrow Wilson, who nominated uh, Louis Brandeis, that most controversial uh, uh, appointment in 1916, a tumultuous year, as well as uh, William Clark McReynolds, one of the more reactionary justices, certainly in, in, in the last, uh, well, it's now over 100 years, but in the 20th century, uh, one of the four horsemen that, that uh, uh, rejected the progressive era uh, expansion of, of federal government or the New Deal, uh, but agreed with Wilson on antitrust. So that was the reason why he was appointed. And then the third nominee that Wilson had was kind of a, uh, a little-lived justice, about sort of five years, James Hessen Clark, who didn't uh, make much of a mark uh, one way or uh, another. And so, you know, the misfires or kind of surprises uh, is, is nothing new and, and not limited to the modern uh, Republican Party. Final question. We, we've heard proposals for reforming the court that don't go nearly as far as the idea of court packing. But one of the suggestions that comes to mind is 18-year uh, terms for Supreme Court justices. What reforms do you think could be made to either the court or to the nomination process that would uh, maybe bring the temperature down and make it a more beneficial process and perhaps even a better functioning Supreme Court? Term limits are the most promising uh, reform proposal, and they're kind of an evergreen. Whenever uh, there are aging justices or whenever there hasn't been a, a change on, in court personnel in a while, the drumbeat increases for term limits. The seminal article on this was written by uh, Steve Calabresi and Jim Lindgren, two Northwestern Law School professors, uh, nearly 15 years ago in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy, proposing this 18-year term with a vacancy uh, every two years. Every presidential term would then get two. 
uh, and there, you know, there'd be various transition issues and, you know, what, what how to deal with uh, early deaths and, and things like this. But uh, the, the good thing about that kind of proposal, and, and I, you know, modestly uh, favor it, I, I had an op-ed in the Atlantic uh, last week about it, uh, is that there would be some regularity to the process, uh, would increase public confidence uh, not to have these uh, random uh, vacancies or morbid death watches or politically timed retirements, that sort of thing. Uh, and uh, it would be crystallized more directly in the presidential and Senate elections that what you're voting for is someone who will be picking or confirming or rejecting uh, judicial nominees. That's a good thing. I mean, term limits is not a panacea, even if, you know, I think you would need a constitutional amendment. There's a, there's a bill pending now and a, a cute academic argument that if you just made some of the justice, quote, senior justices, uh, then that satisfies the idea that they get life tenure. I'm, I'm not convinced by that. Uh, but regardless, term limits would not change the ideological balance of the court. They would not change the power of the court, the controversial issues that the court would be called to rule upon. So it's not like this would solve all of the dynamic that we've been discussing, but at least in terms of regularizing the, the vacancies in the appointment process, that would be a plus. Everything else um, is, uh, is either half-baked or, or has uh, prohibitive uh, transition uh, uh, issues, like getting to a larger court in a way that's not uh, uh, politicized or, or have a partisan hue. Um, you know, changing the, the hearing process, you know, only having counsel for each party asking questions, for example, or, you know, setting in rules of how soon after a nomination there has to be a hearing or a vote. I mean, this is, this is rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, and the Titanic is not the process, it's the product, it's the ship of state. Uh, and as we've been discussing, the only way ultimately to uh, detoxify all of this is to make the stakes lower by having the court be less important. Um, uh, and that's uh, fundamentally by, by rebalancing our constitutional order. So I, I don't have any easy or quick uh, solutions. It took us decades to get to where we are, and I think it'll take decades to unwind. Ilya Shapiro is the director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute and publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He's the author of the new book, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. Ilya, thanks so much for joining us today on Act in Line. My pleasure. And, uh, you know, if uh, your listeners go to supremedisorder.com, not only can they buy the book there, but they can download for free a historical statistical appendix of all the nominations we've had. So you can really nerd out on this stuff. As always, thank you so much for listening today. Our team loves putting this show together for you every week, and it's so encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can reach our team at actonline at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.